0: Coming to you from Classic City, the capital of the Bulldog Nation. It's time for another edition of the podcast designed for, for the, the most die hard Georgia, Georgia fans in the, the country. country. Here are your hosts,
1: Tyler and Charlie.
0: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another edition of the Glory UGA podcast. And joining me in studio, actually, today is my co host, Charlie. And she is going to help me close out the July mailbag. Charlie, it's great to have you back, but I got to ask, are you doing okay? You hanging in there?
1: I mean, I'm okay. The world's still going.
0: You have no idea what I'm referring to, do you? No. Students coming back to Athens? Oh, though. I know this is the time of year where at least you make it seem like a little piece of your soul dies, every single year this time of year is they're coming back into town
1: it does and i was just thinking i haven't heard if they're doing rush
0: actually i that. read or no i one of my colleagues i didn't read this they told me about it. apparently they are still doing rush it's just staggered
1: but they're all i mean when they come back it's just gonna be mess.
0: there's gonna be an outbreak it's ine- like it's inevitable almost yeah. every locality state institution whatever it is that's tried to open there's been some sort of outbreak No. Typically, if you're young, you seem to be okay. It's not a major right. issue. but I'm there's just gonna...
1: concerned that the hospitals are going to get overrun.
0: Yeah. And I think that's really important for the college football season. Honestly, if that's going to be able to actually take place, I think these administrators, presidents of these universities who are really making these decisions, you got to know they're going to be watching that really closely. And yes. It's going to be, I don't know, touch and go, I guess. But real quick, for the people who don't live here in Athens, tell everyone why, as... A townie? Do you even consider yourself a townie? There's implications to that word.
1: I mean, yeah, I guess. Basically a townie,
0: I I consider someone who lives here but isn't in college, right, more or less? That's like out in the community doing things, going downtown, enjoying life, but doesn't take classes at UGA? Yes. So by definition, you're a townie, right? So as a townie, why does it suck so much to have college kids come back?
1: Well, the traffic gets a lot worse. Yeah. Even though it still doesn't take that much longer to go places, they just can't drive because they don't know where they're going.
0: Wow, look at you with the blanket generalization.
1: Well, okay... it's true though they don't pay attention generally speaking true downtown there can be a don't turn left arrow what do people do they turn left on a one-way street it's like slow down pay attention but don't you remember
0: like when you first got to athens back in 1971 and you had no idea where you were going and you were kind of i know i got like the first i think it was the first night my roommate and i we were driving we went like we drove we were going to, to walmart and we went out to like the X Bridge area and try to go in the loop, and we got so lost. It took us three hours to get back home. You didn't experience that?
1: No, I have a better okay. sense of direction. You're just
0: better than, than all you. of us. Okay, I get yes, it. Yes, I do. But I mean, look, it, it's in some ways. I get that you. I get why you don't like the college kids coming back because yes, there's more traffic. Yes, restaurants and bars are more crowded downtown.
1: They provide good people watching.
0: They do. Plus, it's also really good for the economy. I know we're not local yes. business owners, but it is like th- this. City's economy wouldn't run without the college kids.
1: We need them. Plus,
0: like the vibe is usually a little bit better, right? When you've got more people, I know it's a little more crowded, but that can bring a little more energy. And it usually means football is right around the corner. But (laughs)
1: usually, but we have almost two months.
0: And honestly, that's why it usually doesn't bother me that much. Because when I see college kids coming back, oh my god, football's here in a couple of weeks. But I, yeah, we're not going to go there right now. Anyway, so I'm glad that you're still kind of. You seem okay. You seem okay. Usually, you're you're. Kind of beaten down when the college gets coming back, but I guess that's been happening for the last well, the, four months. The world
1: kind of ended. <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's ago. not
0: it's all it's all a matter of perspective, right? But anyway, so this is part two of the July mailbag. Curtis and I, he was with me last week. We answered the first batch of questions then in part one. But not only do we still have some leftover questions from that show to answer, but you guys actually kept pouring them in over the weekend as well. So we got a lot to get to. We're going to do our best to get to all of them today. And also, just real quick, a heads up for all you guys out there. just want to make sure everyone knows that you can send us questions anytime you want. You don't have to wait until we put the call out for the mailbag on social media or on the show. You can wait. That's totally cool. But if you have a question at any point through the month, it doesn't matter. Just shoot that to us. You can send them to us on Twitter at glory underscore UGA. It can be a direct message, a tweet, whatever works for you. Or if you don't do social media and you feel more comfortable with the uh, old school email, you can email us, and that is gloryugapodcast at gmail.com. Just want to make sure everyone knows when and where to send those, which is basically any of those places we just talked about, and anytime you want to send us a question, we got you. But all right, Charlie, we got a lot of questions to get to today, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get to them.
1: Okay, we are going to start with a recruiting question because out of all of the questions, this one probably requires the most thought and analysis. And I think you said you were doing a lot of math for this one. Look at my notes. i got
0: two straight up written pages of notes here. Wow, numbers. No, these are, yeah, are there letters here? I guess a couple of letters, mostly numbers and... Math is not my thing, so this, this probably would take the normal person probably like maybe 20, 30 minutes to do it. it took me about four hours can, to how do this. You
1: have horrible handwriting.
0: My handwriting is perfectly fine.
1: You, no one could read
0: that. I right? really don't care if anyone Anyways. else can read it. I just, as long as I can read it, I'm good. All
1: right. Angry Guy asks, can you give a quick rundown of what Kirby has done with just the four and five star recruits? How many are no longer on the team? How many actually became or look like high NFL draft picks? Angry Guy feels like recruits don't think Kirby develops talent compared to other top schools. What are your thoughts?
0: So yes, first off, I really appreciate this question, Angry Guy. I'm really glad you asked this because it kind of gives me an excuse to dive deeper, as I just detailed, into kind of what I think has become like a peripheral narrative that you hear people spew about Kirby Smart. And we've talked about this on the show before, but I've always felt it's just a flat-out fallacy, this notion that Kirby is... A really great recruiter, but he can't develop talents. And, and, and that's based on what I've watched over the past four seasons. Now, sometimes, granted, what you see, your eyes can deceive you. That, that, that is true at times. And I recognize that. So I w- I'm glad you asked this question so that I could actually put some numbers, some data behind this. And look, like this is something, like this idea, again, that Kirby's a great recruiter but can't develop talent, this is something rival fan bases kind of latched onto really almost immediately upon Kirby taking the job. Like Once we hired Kirby and he started dominating on the recruiting trail, it was kind of just their way to justify getting owned in recruiting and kind of just rationalize a reason to somehow possibly still feel good about themselves and their coaches and that's fine that's what fan bases do that's what makes college football a beautiful sport i expect that kind of thing but what bothers me and i've made this clear throughout the off season is that this is not just something you hear thrown around on rival message boards this is something that has started to seep more and more into the thinking of the mainstream college football media. So again, thank you for motivating me to actually look at the numbers to back up my own observations. And yes, I, I kind of went deep on this one. So I know I think the initial part of your question said, just a quick rundown, right? Well, this is gonna be a little bit more than a quick rundown. I tried to pare this down as much as I could.
1: I don't think it's possible for you to give a quick rundown.
0: No, it absolutely is. But when this is a detailed question, and it deserves a really good answer. So I want to make sure that I give it its just due here. And I don't want to speak for anyone else, but from what I gather, I think the impetus behind this particular question is what people are perceiving as our recruiting struggles, at least relative to the first, what, five or so classes that Kirby Smart's put together here in Athens. And I think what you're getting at is that you're looking for answers as to why exactly things are different this cycle than those in the relatively recent past. And I get that. Like We all know we've been a mainstay in the top three since Kirby took over. But right now, not only are we not in the top three, not only are we not in the top five, we aren't even in the top 10 of the 247 composite team rankings as we enter the last month of the summer. And I understand that thought and the possible explanation for those recruiting woes that Hey, maybe part of that has to do with players either hearing from other coaching staffs with some negative recruiting or just seeing for themselves that maybe Georgia isn't developing players like some of these other top programs. And this is why I want to address this question. Not that anyone listens to me, but I think it's important to address this question head on because not only is it something that rival fan bases say, it started to seep into the thinking, like I said, of the mainstream college football media. and. Other college coaches, they hear that, and they are pushing that narrative because they know that players, high school players, are hearing that when they watch ESPN or whatever it is they're watching, and they're going to, of course, try to further that narrative. So let's take a look at this. So what I did is I took the last four classes from uh, 2016 all the way through the 2019 class. I stopped right there for the 2019 class because the 2020 class hasn't stepped foot on the field yet. And what I did is I added up the number of four- and five-star players that we have signed, as Guy was asking. Then I divided that by the number of those four- and five-star guys that have already become starters or are favorites, in the case of the 2019 class, are favorites to start this season or at least are very likely to start here the next year or two. And That's going to give me a percentage of the number of four- or five-star prospects that we have signed that are actually developing into starters. I also looked at the number of transfers from each class because that was, a, that was part of the question from Angry Guy. And uh, I also then went back and added the total number of draft picks from those four classes. But here's one thing I also did that wasn't necessarily part of the question. I added the element of three-star prospects. I included three-star and below prospects. Not that we're really signing anyone below a three-star. But I I included them in this conversation because... I think that might actually tell you a lot more about developing talent. Like those guys, most, like Eric Stokes, for example, Curtis and I talk about him a lot. He was the guy that thrown in the last minute in a, in a recruiting cycle. And we were kind of like, okay, Eric Stokes, fine. Yeah, he's really fast, good athlete. But like this guy is, I don't know if he's ever going to contribute. He's probably going to be one of those guys on the team for a year and he transfers out. Well, Kirby saw something in him. And with that evaluation, went and developed him into a, an all-SEC caliber cornerback. So to me, like those kind of guys that were kind of afterthoughts, the guys that had raw upsides that needed developing, those guys, if you can develop them, I think that tells me a lot about your ability to actually coach up prospects. You know, and if you're looking at four or five star prospects, like they aren't all created equally, but four and five star guys, like they're usually much closer to being ready to contribute when they walk on campus. Now, don't get me wrong. You have to be able to still develop those guys. Because a lot of teams sign four and five star guys, but they don't turn out to do anything. So, you still have to develop those guys. But the fact is, those guys are typically much closer to being ready to contribute without the coach doing anything than a two or three star type guy. So, I just want to throw that out there as well. But here is what I found. Let's get to the results here. So, since 2016, we have signed 18 five stars and 55 four stars by my calculation. That comes out to 73 four and five star guys combined over, uh, not the last four, but the classes from 2016 through 2019. But we have had 12 of those four- and five-star players from 2016 to 2019 transfer out, which means basically we're working with 61 four- and five-star prospects for the purposes of this exercise. And, and I I want to throw this out there, too. I hesitate to consider—I know—I think Anger Guy was trying to get to the idea that, hey, when a guy transfers out, it means that we didn't develop him. And I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, but I, I guess that's kind of what I inferred from the question— but I want to say I hesitate to consider a transfer a development issue. Sometimes that is the case. You know, you have a guy on the team, like let's say, um, I don't want to call anybody out, but let's say a guy like Nate McBride, right? Nate McBride was a guy that was a a pretty big four-star prospect when we signed him in Kirby's very first class. We're trying to piece that class together. We were all excited about that, but he has not turned out to be a contributor on defense. That's a really great job on special teams. He's been a great teammate he stayed on the team. A lot of times guys like that that are big time prospects that don't start right away or within the first couple of years, they transfer out. Nate stayed on the team. And so sure you can say that maybe on some level that's a development issue, but there's guys like, for every Nate McBride, there's a Justin Fields who transfers out because yeah he had an issue with the playing time that he was getting. Whether you think that's fair or not. Whatever. just in, That happens. Uh, sometimes you have a guy like Luke Ford who transfers out because of a family issue. It's like those things happen. So when you talk about transfers, it's not always just a development issue. Sometimes that can be the case. So I'm not going to really include them in this conversation. So I'm going to say for the purposes of this exercise, we've got 61 four and five star prospects that work whether you take out the four and five star transfers. So by my calculations, when I went back and counted up the numbers, and I did this like three or four times to to, to, uh, check myself. Now certainly feel free to go behind me and and double check me here because I could certainly get something wrong. I think my forte. But by my calculations, 35 of those four and five star signees from 2016 to 2019 have become starters. Or again, in the case of 2019, uh, that class, they're on track to start either this year or next year. I'm talking about guys like Tyreek Stevenson or Nolan Smith, who weren't starters last year necessarily, but they're either going to start this year or next year. It's going to happen. Those guys are going to be starters before it's all said and done. So when you crunch the numbers there, 35 of those guys are starters out of 61. That comes out to 57% of the four and five star players that remained on the team, did not transfer out between 2016 and 2019, have become or are on track to become starters on our football team. Now, if you look at the three-star prospects, three stars and below, 38% of those guys that we have signed over those four cycles became stars. Eight out of 21 three-stars that we signed. So they're the raw numbers, but what does that mean? Because it doesn't mean, in my opinion, it doesn't mean all that much in a vacuum without context. So I figured, okay, this is what took me so long. What the heck? For comparison's sake let's go do the exact same thing I just did for Georgia for Alabama. And you might be asking, why Alabama? You can pick any team. Why Bama? Well, because first, like we all know that's still the hump we need to get over in the SEC. And let's just be real, we don't like to say it because we don't want to give them any props, but we all know they've set the standard for player development in, the, in not just the SEC, but all of college football. Now, Kirby was a part of that, which I think is an ironic part of this conversation. He was a big part of, of what they did with player development at Alabama But if you define player development as getting guys drafted, getting them to the NFL, getting them that money, then Alabama has been the standard for quite a while. So let's compare what Alabama has done in the 2016-2019 time frame to what we did. So Bama signed 84 and 5-star prospects between 2016 and 2019. 16 of them transferred, which means we are working with 64 of those 4- and 5-star prospects for Alabama. Based on my research, 27 of them became starters. Now, look, I'm not an expert on Alabama. I went back, this actually me a lot of time. I went up and down the roster and really dug into, okay, which guys were starters? There's the big time guys we all know, but there might be a guy here on the offensive line you might miss. So I really dug deep on that. And based on what I was able to uncover, 27 of those 64 four and five star prospects became starters, which comes out to 42% compared to our 57%. Uh, But out of 21 three-star signees, only three of those players for Alabama developed into starters, which comes out to 14% compared to our 38% under Kirby Smart. So if you're judging development based on how many of those guys are actually contributing as starters, we have more four- and five-star signees that have become starters, and quite a bit more three-stars and under players that have become starters under Kirby Smart when you look at those... Four years from 2016 to 2019. So that's one aspect of development. Now, here's where we start to fall short, and where you can possibly start to find some sort of an explanation along the lines that you were pointing out, Angry Guy, in terms of why we might be struggling a little bit right now relative to other top programs in this 2021 recruiting cycle. And that's when you start to talk about the NFL draft. When you start to talk to, to talk about draft picks, this is where I think teams can and probably are recruiting against us negatively. And I think this is something that a lot of these top prospects are potentially looking at right now. Because look, we all know if you're a four or five star guy, you have dreams of getting in the NFL. And it's probably a realistic possibility for you if you're rated that high. There's, there's a real chance if you come in, work hard, stay healthy, that you can get yourself to the NFL and achieve all your dreams. So they want to get there. So here's what the NFL numbers are. Since the 2017 draft, and I'm starting there because that's when Kirby's first group of players were eligible to get drafted. We have had six first round draft picks, three second round draft picks, and 21 overall draft picks. Good, solid numbers. Nothing to nothing to be ashamed of. But again, when you're comparing against the best programs in the country, it doesn't quite hold up. Alabama, for instance, since two, the 2017 draft, they have had 15 first round draft picks, they've had seven second round draft picks. So they've doubled us up in first round draft picks and in first and second round draft picks. And get this guys, they've almost doubled us up in overall draft picks. We had 21 overall uh, since 2017. They've had 41. Let's look, look at another program, Ohio State. They've had 10 first round draft picks, four second round draft picks, and 33 overall since 2017. LSU, another program that's obviously just one national title. They've had nine first-round draft picks since 2017, seven second-round draft picks, and 32 overall, again, also ahead of us. The only top program that's kind of on the same level as us when it comes to draft picks is Clemson. Uh, Clemson's had seven first-round draft picks to our six since 2017. They've had five second-round draft picks and 22 overall compared to our 21. Like We are right almost flat even with Clemson when it comes to NFL draft picks. The difference for them is they've won national titles because they've had the quarterback position right and they also get to play in the ACC where it's just I mean let's be real like I detailed on the show earlier this this offseason Clemson just has a greater margin for error playing in the, in the ACC there's just not as many teams that can be they can play really bad one week against Syracuse and still find a way to win that game whereas if we're playing really bad and we're playing Auburn Auburn might not be a great team they might only be an eight win team but if we don't play well they're good enough to beat us so if you look at that, that's where we have fallen short. It's NFL draft picks, and I think that's honestly the most important part. The sure players want to get; they want to get playing time. They want to be starters. That's that's a prerequisite. But ultimately, they're looking to get to the NFL draft. And until we start putting more guys in the NFL draft, putting guys in the first round, I mean LSU had like seven guys in the first round. Something crazy this past year then I think teams can use that and recruit negatively against us. And players see that themselves. They hear those narratives. But I'll also say this. In fairness to Kirby Smart, it's also important to note that Kirby's three best recruiting classes since he's been here at Georgia, they have not been draft eligible yet. A lot of those draft picks that we're talking about between 2017 and this year's draft, they were Rick recruits that Kirby developed. are talk- talking about guys like Roquan, Lorenzo Carter, Sony, Nick, DeAndre Baker, Lamont Gilliard, Nicole harb these are guys that Kirby coached and developed, but he didn't recruit those guys. So, Kirby's going to have a lot more talented group of players to work with and develop that are going to start being eligible for the NFL draft starting this year. So it'll be very interesting in the next couple of seasons to see how those numbers change. I expect they will start to change. But if you look at your recent history, the fact is we put a lot of guys in the the draft. We've, We've got a couple guys in the first round, six first round draft picks. That's better than just about any program in the country, but it's not as good as Bama. It's not as good as LSU. It's not as good as Ohio State. It's not quite as good as Clemson. And those are the teams that we have to beat to get to where we want to be and, and actually win a college football national championship. And those are the teams that we were recruiting against more often than not for those top prospects. So I think that's what has to change. And honestly, I think that it will once we get into this year's draft, the 2021 draft, 2022, 2023, because those are when Kirby's elite recruiting classes are about to be draft eligible. All
1: right. Well, that was about That wasn't a, too long. um, Almost 15-minute Breakdown. So that was a quick rundown. That could
0: have been about 30 minutes. Like, you have no rundown. idea how much I, I cut mean, out of that.
1: But, but for you, that was quick.
0: Whatever. You're just a hater.
1: So obviously we are living in different times right now. And Ethan has a question about the pandemic and its effect on college football as an institution. Ethan says, I know we are all hoping the havoc wrought on college football by the pandemic is a one-year deal, but do you think there will be any long-term repercussions that will impact college sports moving forward?
0: Honestly, I'm not sure how we avoid the long-term repercussions. I'm not ready to say that the entire face of college athletics is going to be different. Like a lot of people are. like, obviously I know right now with what's going on in the PAC 12 with some of those players putting a group together, boy, boycot- threatening a boycott if their demands aren't met. Like, College football is, is certainly at a, at a crossroads right now. It wouldn't necessarily shock me if the Power 5 conferences just completely cut the connection to the NCAA. Like college football has essentially done that, but the rest of the, of the sports are basically run by the NCAA in terms of the, what their championships are put on by the NCAA. And it wouldn't surprise me, especially watch out on Tuesday... I know actually we're recording this on Monday evening. You guys might not not be listening to it until Tuesday or Wednesday or whenever you might be listening to it, but the NCAA Board of Governors, I believe, is scheduled to meet and they're probably going to determine the fate of the NCAA Championships for fall sports this year. They're going to decide whether they're going to keep those on or cancel them. And if they cancel those fall sports, I've actually heard some rumors that the Power Five is actually threatening them behind the scenes. Like, hey, if you do that, we're just going to break away from you and we're going to put on our own championships. And that's going to basically be the end of the NCAA as we know it. So now that would be revolutionary. That would be a a, a big time change. But I, I just don't know if I'm ready to go as far as saying that's going to happen yet. Like it's not impossible, but I'm not ready to say, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely happening. Here's what I would say to watch out for in terms of long-term repercussions. I think postseason expansion for college football and college basketball at least in the short term could very well happen and the reason I say that is they need to make money they need to make as much money as they possibly can with we've all heard for months now about all the the pending shortfalls that athletic departments are going to be facing with the canceling the NCAA tournament last year who knows what college football is going to look like this year if it's even going to be able to be played who knows about college basketball season this year we don't know whatever ends up happening, there are going to be programs that are hemorrhaging cash, that they are in a really, really tough spot. And so how do you help make those programs whole? I think one way to do it is for the NCAA to find a way when they're running some of these championships, like the NCAA basketball tournament, to Generate more revenue, and the more revenue they generate, the more revenue they share with conferences, which means more revenue goes into individual athletic departments. So, for example, like if you look at the 2016-2017 season, that was when the NCAA broke the $1 billion mark in revenue for the very first time, a couple of years back. And 75% of that came from the March Madness tournament. That's where they that's where the NCAA makes the vast majority of their money. In 2019, because we didn't have a March Madness tournament this year, which totally sucked, but in 2019. That number was all the way up to $933 million that the Insulate brought in for the NCAA tournament on ad revenue alone. So how do you make more money? Well, instead of having a 68-team tournament now, well, you expand to 96 teams. And I'm not saying that has to be permanent, but for a year or two maybe to try to get as much revenue into the hands of conferences and by extension into the hands of individual athletic departments as you possibly can. I think that's something that's very realistic. I think you can say the same thing about the Costwell playoff as well. The Costwell playoff is its own separate entity. It's not run by the NCAA, but the Coshwall playoff, just like the NCAA pays out money to conferences for the NCAA basketball tournament, the Costwell Playoff does that for college football. In the college football playoff, it actually is comprised of not just the semifinal games and the national championship, it actually includes all the New Year's Six Bowls as well. And in the 2018-2019 college football season, the college football playoff paid out half a billion dollars, $549 million to conferences and schools with a four-team college football playoff semifinal. And so if you can go from four playoff teams to eight or 16 or however many you want to go, the reason that's important is because that means there's more eyes on those games. And eyes on games equals ad revenue. The more playoff games there are, the more revenue that can be generated. That's really what it comes down to. And so I would not be surprised at all. And I don't know about this year. I mean, I wouldn't be stunned if it happened this year, but time's running short on that. We'll see. Everyone has to be flexible right now. But over the next couple of years, it would not surprise me at all to see there be a postseason expansion in both college basketball and college football just for the reasons of generating as much money as they can to try to save some of these athletic departments that are in a lot of trouble right now. I also wouldn't be surprised. Actually, I think it might—I might even say it's likely at this point. If if we're able to play a college football season and all these conferences are going conference only and playing 9 or 10 conference games, I think one thing—and to me, this would be a welcome repercussion— I think it might be likely that we have, in the future, a nine-game conference schedule. And we stick with that. Maybe not a 10-game conference schedule, but nine games. If, if conferences see how much money can be generated from that, and they look at the inventory they're giving to their TV partners, and their TV partners really like the revenue they were able to drive from that, maybe they put pressure on like the SEC, for instance, with our uh, TV deal coming up here in a couple years, to say, hey, you know what, let's go to nine conference games. And if that happens, which I would love because it's, it's those are better games to watch, then what does that do to group of five programs? Those are that's fewer games that those teams can get. Are they going to be able to survive? I think it also makes it even more unlikely that a group of five team can make the, the uh, college football playoff, which already is unlikely, but I think it makes it even more unlikely when you go to a scenario like that. So there's just a couple of things that have kind of been on my mind when thinking about what the long-term effects could be of this pandemic on college sports.
1: Okay. New offensive coordinator Todd, Todd Munkin and the quarterback situation heading into 2020 have been a hot topic over the summer and Eric wants to know with Daniels being immediately eligible it makes sense to him that Munken could implement more quarterback running game with Newman knowing that Daniels could step in in case of an injury what do you think the offensive philosophy will be under Munken with both quarterbacks
0: this is something i wish i had a better answer for you Eric i really do it's just hard to know without having seen anything I haven't seen anything and no one that I trust has seen anything on the field really because we haven't re- actually had practice with pads on it has to happen. we didn't have screen practice we didn't have G day we didn't have any scrimmages nothing that people that I know can kind of report on to me so it, it's tough to know so all I'm stuck with here is I can go off of what I've seen and what Todd Munkin has done in the past in the past what he has done as we talked about in this show quite a bit is he likes to push the ball down the field in the passing game. And get the ball into his playmaker's hands. I think George Pickens is gonna get a lot of looks this season, He's going to get a lot of touches. That's some one thing that Todd Munkin has made a priority of his, as is pushing the ball down the field, which is one of the reasons I right now I'm still sticking with Jamie Newman as the favorite in the quarterback battle, because his skill set of with his deep ball accuracy really fits what Todd Munkin has done throughout his career as an offensive play caller. Now I do think it's fair to think that there will be some quarterback run game in the equation if Jamie Newman is the guy that does indeed end up winning that starting job. But it's tough to know that for sure. Because As as far as I know, I'm going back and looking at Todd Munkin's background as an offensive play caller. He hasn't really had an athletic quarterback like Newman to work with. There's not really much evidence of him when he was Oklahoma State with Brandon Whedon of doing much quarterback run stuff. In the NFL with Fitzpatrick and Jameis Winston, obviously they didn't do a lot of quarterback run stuff there. I'm not saying that Tom Hunkin cannot do that. He's actually been very innovative where he's gone, but he's done it within the framework of the talent that he had to work with. And he just didn't really have a dual threat quarterback in the vein of a Jamie Newman. So I think it's likely that we would take advantage of his ability to run the football because I think you would be foolish not to because that's one of the big assets he brings to the table. And also, if you're talking about wanting to push the ball vertically down the field, a quarterback run game can make that even more effective because it gives you a numbers advantage in the box, which is going to require defenses to get a little bit more aggressive. We're bringing safeties down into the box, getting guys in there, and that will open up more one-on-one opportunities down the field for a guy like, hopefully, George Pickens. And if he can stay healthy and stay out of trouble, please God. Um, so yeah, I think it's fair to assume that there's going to be a good bit of that. I just, there's no evidence to say that's going to happen yet. We just haven't seen it yet. But, yeah, I think I mean, it, would just, it makes too much sense. If Newman doesn't win the job, it makes too much sense to not utilize his legs the way, at least in something similar to how Wake Forest used him last year.
1: All right, let's stay on the field but flip over to the defensive side of the ball. Robbie wants to know who will lead the team in overall tackles this year, Rice, LeCount, or someone else. He's ready to see this defense go to work again and possibly be even better than last year.
0: Yeah, Robbie, great question, man. And I agree with you. I've said this a couple of times. I'm with you, man. I think this defense has a chance to be even better than last year. In fact, I'm, I'm going to say I I think this defense will be better. I know that's tough to say when you look at how great we were statistically last year. But man, if you look at the vast majority of those contributors are coming back and we adding some younger talent as well, some really talented guys. I think this defense, I know it sounds crazy, can actually be better. But if I'm looking at who's going to lead the team in tackles this year, I'm going to go with Monty Rice. Uh, he Led the team in not only did he lead the team in tackles last year, but he had 27 more tackles than the guy with the second most tackles last year. And I don't see a reason why that's gonna change. I think he's gonna play a lot this year, just like he did last year. He's not a third down guy. He comes off the field on third downs, but he's on on first and second downs, third and short situations, he will be on the field more often than not. And yes, we're gonna have a rotation this year. I think we'll have more rotation at the linebacker spot with guys like N'Kobe Dean and Quay Walker getting a little bit more experience after what they did, were able to do last year in their first year, really the first years in the rotation, especially for Nicobi since he was a true freshman. Those guys are going to be in the rotation, but I think Monty is going to be the guy that stays on the field more often than not. We might give him a breather here and there, but I think it's that other, that second linebacking spot that you're going to see more rotation. It's kind of like when Roquan was here in 2017. Yeah, we would rotate at linebacker, but Roquan would stay on the field the vast majority of the time. Yeah, we take him off the field for a couple plays here and there, maybe a drive. But he was not the guy that we were rotating. It was really Nate when he was healthy and not in trouble. And Reggie Carter who were rotating in and out. I think that's going to be the case this year. I think Monty's, uh, in my mind, honestly, probably the pretty clear choice here.
1: Okay. We all know Florida has once again been the media darling of the SEC East this offseason. But for our next question, Emory Dave says, Florida may be out of the SEC East race by the time we play them. So other than Alabama, who would be number two? Emory Davis thinking it's South Carolina, but it could be Tennessee.
0: You know, Tennessee is a, is a popular choice to be that third team in the, in the division this year. And I, I can certainly see that. I actually spent uh, Saturday night watching Tennessee play and getting ready for this guy in the enemy episode that we're going to do on them in a couple of weeks here. And Tennessee, I, I see talent there. I see promise. I see potential. And I see a team that's getting better. And they're upgrading their talent each and every year with how they're able to recruit with Jeremy Pruitt now at the helm. And I told you guys when he got that job that he was going to get players to that school, because that's what Jeremy Pruitt does. He's an outstanding recruiter, just like Kirby Smartest. I would take Kirby over, over Pruitt any day of the week. But Pruitt is a really good recruiter in his own right. So that's a team to certainly watch out for. But I'm going to go a little off the radar here. And I'm going to go with the Kentucky Wildcats as the team to watch in the SEC East, to kind of maybe rise up and, and challenge... To be that second team in the East, made that third team, and I know that they did this a couple years ago, right? We we played a big game down there after we beat Florida in 2018. We go to we go to Lexington. And that was a that was a big game. I think it was an, it was a CBS game, and we kind of just stepped on their throat from the very get go in that game. And, and it took a slight step back last year, mainly because of injuries. You I mean you had Lynn Bowden was basically their quarterback from about week four or five on. He was their star wide receiver, and, and they and I was just so impressed with how. Eddie Graham, the offensive coordinator, was able to completely revamp their offense midseason like that and still find a way to win a game, to get to a bowl game. Just unbelievable. I think they have an outstanding coaching staff. Like I just mentioned Eddie Grant is a really good offensive coordinator. He's been a great offensive mind for a long time now. Mark Stoops, man, I have so much respect for him as a defensive coach. So the, the coaching staff is there. Now, they're not the most talented team. They're not, they're not going to be up and down the roster as talented as Tennessee and probably not as talented from like a recruiting number standpoint as South Carolina. But when I look at this team... And I watched them play, actually I watched the Tennessee-Kentucky game on Saturday from last year. I see a team that, man, I think can really, really push to be second or third in the SEC East this year. Defensively, I think they're going to be really, really good. Going into 2019, they were 127th nationally in returning production on the defensive side of the ball. They lost a ton of players, all their best players off that great Kentucky defense in 2018. But the thing is, even though they lost all those guys, they lost... Josh Allen, they lost all those big-time players from that 2018 defense that was a, essentially a top-25 defense. You thought there's no way that they can play like play like that again in 2019. This is the kind of program where, yeah, they'll cycle up every couple years, but they'll take a step back and to rebuild. No, that did not happen last year. Despite all the guys that, were, that left the team, went on the NFL, guys that graduated, all the youth and experience they had on that team last year on that defense – they actually slightly improved on their total defensive numbers. And their yards per play numbers defensively were almost exactly identical. They got a bunch of those guys come back. Quentin Bohan on the interior of that defensive line. No Sackle is a stud. That's an NFL player. Josh Paschal is an NFL player. Jamar Watson, I think, is, a, is an NFL player on that defensive line. Yusuf Corker is a really good player in the secondary. They've got some really good players and they have outstanding defensive coaching. So I think that defense is going to be really nasty again. And offensively, I know they've had, they had some offensive issues last year. They were completely one-dimensional once Bowden took over as their quarterback, but I don't think that's necessarily going to be the case this year. They're really anchored by an extraordinarily good offensive line. One of the best offensive lines really in all of America. And I'm not one of those guys who just says, oh yeah, I've heard somebody say Kentucky's offensive line is really good. So yeah, they're really good. No guys, seriously, go watch an offensive line. I watched them up close uh, in that Tennessee game. All right. Zeroed in on that game, on that group in that game. And dude, those guys are legit. Drake Jackson is as good of a center as I've seen in a while. I and mean, that guy was reach blocking guys that were, on a, that were lined up at the three tech. All right. Reaching somebody that's lined up at the three tech. That's insane. He was doing it with regularity. Landon Young is a really good tackle as well. They have a really good offensive line and they got a good Trio at running back with A.J. Rose, Cavassier, Smoke, Chris Rodriguez. Yes, quarterback could be a potential question mark, but they've got experience coming back in Terry Wilson. He tore his ACL early in the season last year. It was actually looking as a, looking like he had improved as a passer before he went down with the injury. In fact, it might not have been his ACL, but whatever he went down with, he was out for the year. And don't forget, they also added Joey Gate with the transfer from Auburn, to push Terry Wilson. So I think they actually will be in pretty decent hands at quarterback, whoever wins that job. And with that defense... I think Kentucky could be the the kind of the, the the sleeper team to watch out for in the SEC East.
1: Okay. The next two questions come from one of our favorite and most loyal listeners, Cliff.
0: Cliff.
1: First, Cliff asks, "Is Bama the team UGA should hate the most?" He feels like the Gators have been vanquished as of late. Honestly, he wants a natty more than he wants to beat Florida. Call him crazy, but the tide is stolen. How many titles away from UGA?
0: Cliff, you and I are on the same page uh, when it comes to the natty talk, man. Like I want a national championship and Charlie, you can, you can back me up on this. Honestly, I want a national championship more than anything on the face of the earth. I cannot think of one thing I would, like if somebody said, Hey dude, I'll come, I'll give you $10 million. I'd be like, well, can I have a national championship first? Like that would be my, that'd be my response. Like that, I want that more than really anything on earth. Like that's what I want. So I am with you on that Cliff. And yes, Bama has been the team that has been in our way more so than Florida has been when it comes to getting to that national championship over the what past four or five seasons but when you're talking about rivalries I think a big part of that has to be frequency like the history you have playing them and like when it comes to Alabama we just like I don't love Alabama fans but I, I, I'm kind of indifferent to them because I just don't interact with their fan base as much as I do Florida's fan base so that to me for me personally this is just me personally I don't have as much built-in hatred for Alabama as I do Florida. I just don't. I don't like Alabama, but I don't have that deep, abiding hatred for them that I do for Florida. Because uh, we just don't have the history with them. Yes, they have cost us some national titles recently. Obviously, in 2017. You make an argument uh, in 2018. So we would have gotten in the playoffs, at least, if we would have won the SEC title game. And who knows what happens in the playoffs. I don't know if we have the defense to win it in 18, But hey, things can happen once you get there. So they certainly have been in our way, and you are absolutely correct. You really are in asserting that Bama is currently our greatest nemesis in terms of who we've got to conquer. I love the word the word you use, vanquished. You're right. We have to vanquish them. We've kind of vanquished Florida. We have, still have not vanquished Alabama. We've got to do that to get to the next level. But it, it just comes down to the fact that I just if you're talking about rivalries and like in hatred, like built in, I still side with Florida because we just have more of a history with them. And we just play them with more frequency. We have more interaction with their fan base on a regular basis than we do with Alabama's. And yeah, I get what you're saying though, in terms of like Florida being not, they're just not as relevant as Alabama right now. And that's kind of like the same argument I have with Tech. That's why I struggle with them because look, you guys know, I hate Georgia Tech. In fact, I might hate Georgia Tech more than any other program out there. Florida's a close, it's right there with Florida, and i probably give Florida the edge, just they're they're more relevant than Tech is, but like, the thing is with Tech is like, yeah, I hate them, but they're so irrelevant, like, sometimes I ask myself, should I even hate them, like, are they even worth my, my attention, like, do I even pay them any attention at all, so I get what you're saying there, uh, but for me, and this again, just personally, I still say I've got more hatred for Florida, I see them as more of a rival uh, when you look at it from a historical standpoint in Alabama. But certainly in the in the short term, in recent history, Alabama has been that team that we have yet to get over and we've got to find a way to get over that hump. There's no doubt there.
1: Cliff's second question is, what are the biggest position battles for fall camp?
0: The offensive line is where my mind goes to first in this. Obviously, the, the tackle positions, both tackle positions are open. I think Jamari Salyer is the odds-on favor for the left tackle spot right now. That seems to be the general consensus around people who would know those things. Right tackle is still very much open. I had heard really good things about incoming true freshman Broderick Jones before he got hurt. It looks like he's probably going to be out. Well, he was going to be out through fall camp is what I had heard, but now that fall camp's likely getting pushed back, with the season getting pushed back, who knows? He might actually be healthy for fall camp, or at least at some point in fall camp, which would be really, really great. Now he's obviously going to miss some time with the workouts, but he was making a move there. Tate Ratledge is another rising or incoming true freshman that I've heard a lot of good things about. But Warren McClendon is the guy that I think right now, if I had to put money on it, would probably be the guy that I would handicap as the favorite right now. But once Broderick Jones gets healthy and if if Tate Ratledge can kind of get used to the system a little bit more, then I would not be surprised. In fact, I think one of those guys, before the season's all said and done, if we play this year, I think one of those guys, either Ratledge or Jones, if they can stay healthy and get healthy will ultimately end up taking over that right tackle spot. But I still think that's that there's going to be a battle there. The left guard spot will be somewhat of a battle. I think Justin Schaefer, kind of like Salier, is, is the leader in the clubhouse. But there's going to be a battle. they got Clay Webb. we got Erickson. There's some guys are going to be fighting for that spot. So that's certainly going to be a battle as well. Obviously, we, we talked about quarterback already. JT Daniels, Jamie Newman, that's going to be a battle. Actually, I think that's going to be a really tight battle. Like I said, I, I give Newman the edge right now, but JT Daniels is going to come out swinging in that battle. There's no doubt there. It's going to be an interesting one to watch. Then on the defensive side of the ball, I'm looking at that other inside linebacker spot opposite Monty Rice. N'Kobe Dean, Quay Walker, in my mind, are the two favorites for that job since they were the guys that were in the rotation last year. Channing Tindall is still here, and he's certainly going to try to find himself in the middle of that competition as well. I'm sure he will be, but that's certainly something to watch closely in fall camp because I think whoever wins that job can put up some big tie numbers. I love N'Kobe Dean. I love Quay Walker. Those guys are, in my mind, I think, I think they're both future stars. I think once Monty moves on after this year, that those probably are going to be our two guys going into the 2021 season. And then a cornerback as well. I think Eric Stokes has got one of those spots, but you got DJ Daniel came in in relief of Tyson Campbell last year once Campbell went down with his injury. But Campbell's back healthy, and he, he's a serious athlete. I mean, he's he is a superior athlete. I was really impressed with what I saw from DJ Daniel last year from a technique standpoint and just knowing how to play that position. And just honestly, just a general awareness perspective, which is something that Campbell really struggled with as a true freshman. I saw some improvement from Campbell when he was playing when it comes to that last year. So I think that is going to be a really interesting battle to watch as well. So there's a number of those. And we're actually, we're going to do a full show on the position battles. That was kind of a mini breakdown there. But Curtis and I, in a couple of weeks, are going to do a full-on breakdown of all the major position battles as we get closer to fall camp.
1: Okay, and to wrap up this month's mailbag, we have a few more questions. First, Reggie wants to know, with the 10-game SEC schedule, which freshman may actually see the field if we play Bama in Game 1?
0: Yeah, and there's a strong likelihood that we're going to still play Bama in Week 1, but we don't know that for sure. I know Reggie sent this question in before the scheduling news came out. Um, so they might just completely redo the order of the schedule. But yeah, let's just say for the sake of this question that we're, we're still playing Bama week one. But who are some freshmen that will find their way into some playing time if we have a 10-game conference schedule? I think – I mentioned a couple of in the offensive line. If Broderick Jones can get healthy, I think he's a guy to really watch out for. I've seen some really good things about him in the voluntary workouts. Tate Ratledge as well at the same position On the defensive side of the ball, you guys know I've mentioned Jalen Carter many times. I think that guy is a future star on the defensive line. I think he might find his way into some playing time. I know we have a lot of guys that can play on the defensive line right now. We've got a lot of experience coming back. But I think Jalen Carter might just be too talented to keep off the field. And he's a guy that I'm fully expecting right now to find a role in some way, shape, or form. You look at the receiver position, I've heard a lot of good things about uh, Jermaine Burton, Marcus Roseme, Justin Robinson, Arian Smith. All four of those guys I've heard good things about at different times and from different sources. So one or two of those guys, I, I wouldn't be surprised. If I had to put money on it, I would say Jermaine Burton's probably the guy I'm looking at most closely right now. I think he's the most polished and really just maybe the most ready to come in right away and contribute. But I wouldn't be surprised if Marcus Roseme. Had something to say about that as well. So there's a couple of guys off the top of my head to watch for coming in as true freshmen here in 2020.
1: All right, Georgia CFB asks, could you ever envision Will Muschamp being hired as an assistant at UGA if he were to lose his job at South Carolina, which seems likely at this point?
0: Yeah, you would think. I think from the outside looking in, it seems likely that he's a, that he would lose his job after this year if they have another year where they where they don't make it to a bowl game. But from everything that I understand inside the athletic department, Ray Tanner, their athletic director, former baseball coach there, is a big Will Muschamp guy. And since he's a guy that was a coach not all that long ago, I think he understands the need to give him time to build his program. Because Muschamp has some decent years when he first got that job. Now, last year was a major step back. They've had a couple down years in a row here. But I think that Tanner wants to give him as much time as he can because honestly if you look at what Muschamp has done he's recruited better at South Carolina than really any coach maybe in their history now it hasn't always translated to the field and that's got to happen for them but I think when the recruiting returns have been as positive as they have been relative to what South Carolina has been historically I think that he's going to give even if he even if he doesn't make a bowl this year unless it's like a two-win season I think they'll give him another year and I think that's and one another reason I say that is Mike Bobo had options. Bobo had options, but he chose to come to South Carolina. I don't think he would have done that, even though I know him and Muschamp are tight, right? But I don't think he would have done that unless he had some sort of assurances from someone higher up than Muschamp himself that they were in for the long haul with Muschamp, and as long as they were showing some sort of progress that Mushamp would be able to stick around for another year beyond this year as well and so that kind of convinced Bobo to jump on and that's me just speculating there but Bobo's a smart guy he really's a sharp dude friends are not with Mushamp. he was gonna make the best move for his career and I don't know if that was the best move for his career because you would think on the outside looking in it's kind of like wait a minute this guy's on the hot seat right he might lose his job this year. you're gonna come in there for one year and then be gone I don't know if that's the best move but I don't necessarily know if, if that's the case. So, but anyway, let, let, if he does get fired, which I think probably at some point is going to happen here in the next couple of years, if it's not this year, I, I mean, I don't see that. I, I just don't see South Carolina getting over the hump consistently with, with Will Champ. I think it's just too big of a hill to climb in the SEC East right now. It was one thing when, when we weren't maximizing our potential, but that's not happening anymore. Florida is getting better. And uh, I just don't see South Carolina consistently being in, in that top group for the SEC East division. So if and when he does get fired... I I think it's certainly possible that he would end up on our staff. But here's the thing. I think it depends on the situation and the timing. Because I don't think, as good of friends as Kirby and Muschamp are, you're right, I mean, Muschamp's son is a a preferred walk-on here at Georgia. The families are close. Not just the the two coaches, the families in general are close. But I don't think Muschamp's going to come here to coach in any capacity beneath the defensive coordinator spot. So it has to be like the kind of perfect timing situation where let's say Dan Lanning's got an offer that he couldn't refuse and he moves on to be a head coach, which I don't want to happen because I love Dan Lanning. Honestly, I'd rather have Dan Lanning right now than Will Muschamp. I know that might sound crazy. He doesn't have the track record, but I love what I've seen from Dan Lanning. I think he's an incredible recruiter. I think he's a rising star in this profession. I think he's kind of Kirby Smart's version of himself when he was at Alabama, to be honest. So I think it takes something like that. I think he would have to take a job as a head coach, move on, and that coordinator spot be open the same year that Muschamp gets fired, or if Muschamp takes a year off and is waiting to see what happens in the college ball landscape, and he's sitting out there without a job, and our defense coordinator spot is open, then sure we can. I could certainly foresee a scenario where Kirby brings Muschamp on as as defense coordinator. I'll say this: if our defense coordinator position was open if it was vacant, and Muschamp didn't have a job then yes, I think Mustchamp would be our defensive coordinator. I, that just takes some serious timing for that to happen, and I just don't know if you can predict that that's going to be the case when, when and if he does get fired.
1: All right, last question, and I know we've touched on linebackers already a little bit, but Trey asks, if a linebacker is the most valuable player on defense, what does that say about our season? And bonus question, which linebacker would you pick to be this player?
0: If our if a linebacker is the most valuable player in our entire defense, I think that what that would tell me if that ends up being the case at the end of this season is that we were uh, really 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 good against the run again. And if I had to pick who that might be, I mean, I gotta go with Monty Rice again. He was the lead tackler of last year's team, leading returning tackler off last year's team, and he was twenty seven tackles better than the number two guy. So I think Monty Rice is that dude this year and I, there's a good chance he might end up being the most viable player on the defense. There's a couple other guys you can look at. You can look at Richard LeCount. You can look at a guy like Eric Stokes. You could even potentially look at a guy like Azizo Ojolari, Jermaine Johnson, Nolan Smith, one of those, those outside linebacker pass rusher kind of guys. But I think Monty would be the guy I'd put my money on right now in the middle of that defense, and if, if that is indeed the case, I think that we're going to be set up for another really, really strong season, especially defensively, and if we're that good defensively, then uh, we're going to have a shot to win the whole dang thing. But all right, is that it? That's it. That's it. All right, guys. We really appreciate all the questions that you guys sent, and we appreciate you guys supporting us here on the Glory UGA podcast. Again, if you have any questions at any time through the month of August or any month in the future, feel free to send those to us on Twitter at Glory underscore UGA, or you can email those to us at Podcast at gmail.com. We'll save those for our August mailbag that we will run in a couple of weeks. Also, just a quick friendly reminder, if you do enjoy the show, we would really appreciate if you'd help us out by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. That would be a huge help for us. But thanks for listening. For Charlie, I'm Tyler, and as always, Go dogs.